You have not come to something that can be touched, a blazing fire, darkness and gloom, and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse the one who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven? Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. There are only three monotheistic religions in the world today. Mono, coming from the Greek word for one, we have it in the word monotone, and in a number of other words, one. Theos, meaning God, so monotheistic simply means only three great bodies in the world today that claim to worship the one true God. First was Judaism, of course. And they claim that their people began with an old man named Abram and an old woman named Sarai, whose names were eventually changed to Abraham and Sarah, who by the promise of God, even when they were too old for making babies, gave them a son, Isaac. And the Jews say that all of their history before Abraham and Sarah is unknown to them. Those first chapters of Genesis are an attempt to talk about how all things came into being for that moment when God approached this old man and old woman and promised them a son. So the Jews say, we're descendants of Abraham and Sarah through Isaac, their son. Next came the Christians. Paul told us Gentiles that Abraham and Sarah were counted right with God because they came to trust God. They believed the promises God was making to them, and because they did, they were counted right with God. And that if we trust that we too have the favor of God, that is, God wants good to come to us, then we too are children of Abraham and Sarah by faith. Then came the Muslims, who said that they are children of Abraham, not of Sarah, but through the slave girl, Hagar, and her son, Ishmael. So all three of us claim to be somehow spiritual descendants, at least, of Abraham. We're called the Abrahamic face. But there's a bigger thing that separates, and that is how the three of us believe we have seen God most clearly revealed. Though the Jews have 39 scrolls in their Bible... The first five are by far the most important. If you were to go to Temple Israel, our congregation B'nai Amuna, every Friday night for a whole year, you would hear the first five scrolls read completely through. And next year, right after Yom Kippur, they would begin again and read through Torah, through Torah, year after year after year. The first five are the most important. And the central figure in the Torah, short of God himself, is Moses. It is Moses 
who was confronted by God at the burning bush. It was Moses sent back to face down Pharaoh. It was Moses who led the children through the sea and into the desert all the way back to Sinai where God called Moses up and gave him the Ten Commandments. Right? For the Muslims, there's no question, God is most clearly revealed in the work of the prophet Muhammad and the Quran. For us Christians, the one true God is revealed most clearly in Mary's child, Jesus, whom we call our Lord, our Savior. The author of Hebrews is dealing with these big matters, not Muslims, they had not come yet when this letter was written, but dealing with us and our kinship with the Jews. Point number one, he says, you have not come to a mountain you could touch. We Gentiles have not gone back to Sinai to, to see the clearest picture of God. You did not come to a mountain that you could touch, where there were rumblings, thunder, lightning, things accompanying a theophany, a revealing of God. Instead, you have come to a heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant whose blood pleases more than that of Abel. Abel, you remember, offered a sacrifice acceptable to God. When Cain murdered him, the Bible says the blood of Abel cried out for vengeance. The blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness and mercy, uh, great compassion and grace. Right? So we have come to know God, clearest of all for us, in Jesus Christ. It is in Him that we see the face and the heart of God. John Geiger has written a new book called The Third Man Factor. In this book, he relates experience after experience of people who said they were accompanied by a presence that said nothing but gave great assurance, courage. He talks about one particular event back in 1915. An expedition was exploring Antarctica uh, the cold, the freezing got even more severe than they had imagined. Their ship was surrounded by ice. They could not get out. And three decided to try to go and get help for all the others. Uh, these three braved this horrible darkness that goes on almost forever in the wintertime. Cold, cold, cold. And when finally the three of them made it through, without, without exception, all three said there were four on the trip. Oh, someone else left with you who didn't make it? No. Well, sort of. Yes. There was a fourth. I tell you, there was a fourth every step of the way. He moves to a chapter dealing with 1953. A young man was attempting to climb the ninth highest peak in the world. It's one of the Himalayas. And it's one of the most difficult in the world to climb. It has very sheer rock faces and several different heights on the mountain. And this young man was up there all alone. He thought he could get to the top and get back down to the bivouac area before dark. But a storm caught him right at the top of the peak. And he spent a whole night and the next day with blinding, driven snow. Uh, he had no tent, uh, no sleeping bag. He was out in the elements all by himself. But when he got back down, he said, but I was not alone. There was another there. Really, what did he say? 
He did not speak, but he was there. I was reassured. I knew I was going to make it. Seventeen years later, 1970, two brothers decided to try to scale that same peak. One of them slipped and fell to his death. The other was trying to get back down. He, too, had to spend time in that driven snow and ice, horrible howling winds. And when he got back down, he said, there was another. And we, they said, your brother? No, no, after him. After he had fallen, there was another. What did he say? He didn't say. He did not speak. But he was there. There was an assurance and assurance that he was there. So John Geiger chronicles one after another. Doesn't come up with an answer except these people say they couldn't have made it without the assurance that there was another right there with them every step of the way. We know that one ourselves. In good times and bad, if we've come to him as we know him in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number two, second point that I underlined is right at the end of the reading, where this author is alluding to the prophecy of Haggai. Now, you'll be familiar with the words of Haggai if you come year after year to the presentation of Handel's Messiah, because Handel chose one of the base parts from the work of Haggai. Now, you know that in musical theater, in opera, almost always the tenor gets the girl. Okay? The tenor gets the romantic parts, and the villain gets the bass roles. In Handel, too. Even in Handel, it's the tenor that sings, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. And the bass sings, Once again, in a little while, I will shake the sea. I will shake the dry land. I will shake all nations. And this bass voice goes on and says it again and again and again. After a while, in a little while, once again, I will shake the sea and the dry land and the nations. I will shake, I will shake, he sings. And this author says, we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable unshakable. It's a passive tense verb. Not we are taking, not we are overpowering, we are receiving. Green, kingdom tide, this last season of the religious year, of our liturgical year, we are receiving a kingdom unshakable. Tracy Kidder has written a true story about a young man who grew up in Burundi, a member of the Tutsi tribe. If you've read about this horrible struggle that's gone on for ages, it seems, between the Tutsis and the Hutus, the Hutus are, are more numerous, and they have killed thousands upon thousands of the Tutsis. This young man saw his village burned and those whom he loved uh, murdered. He ran into the woods, and he ran and ran and ran, and eventually came to someone who could help him. This person believed that he was not safe to stay in Burundi, and so he was able to move things through paperwork-wise for him to come to the United States 
uh, as a political refugee. But when he got here, he spoke no English, and he had no money. He ended up sleeping in Central Park in New York City, destitute, starving to death. One day, a woman social worker who had been a nun in the Roman Catholic Church, who still loved the, the, the church, the mother church, but felt she needed a little bit more freedom to do her work by moving out of one of the orders, an ex-nun met him in the park, and she was trying to ask him first, what is your name? What is your name? And he seemed to grasp enough of that, that when he told her his name, she knew he had been raised in a Christian home. Furthermore, his name was not in Burundi or in Tutsi, it was in Latin. And so she said, will you come with me? Convinced him that he should go with her. And she got an interpreter. And through this interpreter discovered that surely enough he was born into a Christian family in Burundi. He had received training in the Roman Catholic Church. He had gone to Catholic schools. He was very bright. He didn't speak English, and he had no money. She had him take tests in his own language and got him into Columbia University. He was graduated with honors with a degree in organic chemistry. She got him into medical school at Dartmouth, and he has gone home to Burundi and founded a medical clinic for his people. The name... The name was Deo Gracias, all one word. His mother and father had named him Deo Gracias, thanks be to God. This precious little boy born to us, thanks be to God. Or perhaps that God feels just such gratitude every time one little boy, one little girl is born into the world for a child to know that my parents were so thankful for us to know that God is so thankful when finally we acknowledge who we are and we come home a daughter a son of the Almighty number three this author says be sure that you do not reject the one who is calling you be sure Almost four and a half years ago, I, I became head of our evangelistic efforts here at Boston Avenue Church. Hardly seems possible that I've been doing it this long. Um, almost four and a half years, I've been doing the primary calling. And when I call, I'm trying to help people make a decision. I'm just trying to help people make a decision, the most important one in their whole lives. I believe it is the most important decision in their whole lives. After I try to establish some rapport, I get to the question, have you ever been baptized? And if the person has never been baptized, then the next question becomes, what would it take for you to profess faith in Christ and be baptized? You know the worst answer? I don't know. Or I'm thinking about it. And some don't know, and some think about it week 
after week, after month, after month, after year, after year. I can show you records of people who've been thinking about it 15 years, but we've been calling on them from Boston Avenue, and they're still thinking about it, but not much. Not much. Because if you really think about it, and understand that this is the most important question in the whole world, do you believe in God? Do you believe that that God has revealed himself most clearly in Jesus Christ? Do you think you've ever done anything that somehow alienated you from the purposes of God, that you've not always gotten things exactly right, and you really would like to be restored to right relationship with God, that God's willing to make that happen for you, and you come home to him? Decision. I was a liberal arts major at Centenary College in Shreveport, Louisiana. Last year, U.S. News and World Report enlisting the great college and universities of our country said the best liberal arts college in America you've never heard of, Centenary College. It's a wonderful college in Shreveport, much older than LSU, much older than Tulane. It has a thousand students. They admit 250 each year. 125 female, 125 male. 96% of them graduate. More than 80% of them go on to graduate school. To go to Centenary College, you have to learn to read and write. Read and write, read and write, read and write. You have to have music appreciation and art appreciation. I remember when I took art appreciation and I was shown reproductions, of course, of these magnificent paintings, century by century by century, these magnificent paintings. I never dreamed at that point that Gail and I would get to see so many of them. We've been in some of the great art museums of the world. And now they make it wonderful for you. They, they have little discs that you can you know, hang around your neck. And if you see a painting you want to know more about, you press a certain number and they tell you five minutes, ten minutes about this painting. If you're not so interested in the next three, you can move by them pretty quickly and get to the next one. Punch the button. You can listen. It's wonderful. Well, right now there's a big exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, the works of James Ensor. James Ensor from Belgium. Gail and I have been to Belgium. James Ensor has a lot of work there. In New York City right now they have 130 of his paintings. Going to be there just a month. But the reviewer for the Wall Street Journal, the critic, art critic, said, Raphael lived only 37 years, but his paintings today are worth millions. Vincent van Gogh lived only 37 years, couldn't sell a painting while he lived, and now they're worth millions apiece. James Ensor lived 89 years, and never could figure out what kind of stuff he was supposed to paint. That's what the critic says. He'd chase after acrylics for a while, then he'd chase after oils for a while, then he'd chase after watercolors for a while, then he'd chase after pen drawings for a while. If only once, this critic said, he had ever decided the kind of artist he was supposed to be. How about you? Have you ever made that biggest decision in your life? Number four. 
Well, because we are receiving this kingdom that is unshakable, we should approach with gratitude, reverence, and awe. That's what this author says. Gratitude, reverence, and awe. You know what reverence means? I use it quite often, so do you. I remember when our Allison was about seven, our daughter Allison, we were driving home from church one time in Houston, and from the back seat I heard this question, Daddy, yes, why do people call you reverend? And I said, they don't know me very well. <laughs> Reverence. You know what Webster says in their big unabridged dictionary? He looked it up again this week. Reverence. A sense of deep respect for something sacred, something set apart. So then I looked up awe. And the definition is reverence tinged with fear. Reverence tinged with fear. And yet this author says to you, don't be afraid. Come closer. Closer. With gratitude, reverence, and awe. Rhoda Blecker has written for years in Daily Guideposts, year-long devotional book, Guideposts prints every year. You have to pay close attention, though, to realize, as far as I can tell, she's the only Jew who writes in this publication. You can read a whole month of devotionals, and they're all written by Christians, different ones. And then here's another one by Rhoda. She and her husband live out in Bellingham, Washington, a couple of years ago, she was writing that her husband was battling cancer. So far, he's in remission from that. Then she had to have a biopsy, and she was worried to death that she was going to be battling cancer at the same time he was. But recently, she wrote about their synagogue, where they go every week. And she said, we are faithful worshipers, but we've heard Torah read so many times, you know, we just go through the motions. It's become so commonplace to us until we really needed it again. We really started reading it in the 2,500 years of commentary on Torah. We started reading in a way we never had before. And in the middle of that experience, she said, one Shabbat, we went to our synagogue. And unless it's Yom Kippur, we know everybody there. There was a woman we'd never seen before. And so I asked one of the persons sitting next to us, who is she? And we were told that she had been brought to the synagogue by another member of our congregation, that this was a woman who had lived her whole life in what was the Soviet Union, and for decades in her little village had not been allowed to go to synagogue. No worship was allowed at the synagogue. And Rhoda says that in my synagogue, the one she attends with her husband, um, instead of passing the Torah up and down the aisle as they do, they do at Temple Israel here, 
you know, when they come to that special moment when the little curtain is drawn on the ark that sits right in the middle of the bima, the platform, they take this scroll out. Uh, they're covered usually in a beautiful velvet uh, cloth. They walk up and down as the people sing. And sometimes someone dares reach out and touch as it passes nearby. And then it's uncovered and, and unscrolled and read, portion appropriate. Well, Rhoda said their rabbi decided that the Torah scrolls needed to be a little closer to the people. They're just going to pass them up and down the pew. And she said, but we've done it so much now that we just do it. And suddenly she said, I was watching this woman who had not been allowed to go to synagogue for decades. And when someone started to hand this beautiful velvet colored scroll, covered scroll to her, she started trembling. I could see her hands, she said. I could see them shaking. And she looked like she didn't know whether she should participate or not. And the person next to her who had brought her put it into her lap. And her whole upper body started to shake, she said, just to shake. And then I saw a tear just drip off her chin and onto that beautiful velvet cloth. The Word of God was there. God was there. Amen.